Hey guys, this is Andrew. Super excited to have you on today with my good friend, John Cooper. John has had a really interesting career as an operating partner at one of the most successful industrials-focused holding companies in the world. His company, Atlas Holdings, employs more than 50,000 people across 26 businesses across the globe. John's job is basically to helicopter into things like power plants, lumber mills, manufacturing facilities, and figure out how we can best optimize the production, leveraging new technologies that are available. John and I have explored many categories of technology over the years, and it's always a really interesting discussion. But today we focus our conversation on LLMs and how they can help manufacturers of factory equipment better support their end customers. The implications of this are incredibly interesting to think about. If OEMs have better relationships with their end customers, they can build new post-purchase service business lines and ultimately drive a higher repeat purchase rate for their products. And for those going after this opportunity, there are some really interesting network effect dynamics and distribution hacks that we explore that prevent it from just being a GPT wrapper. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. John Mann, thank you for joining. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, okay, so we've known each other for many years, and uh, I- I've explained in the intro a little bit uh, to the audience on what Atlas does, but just for the sake of both me and the group, why don't you give us a, an overview of what you do day-to-day and how that fits into the Atlas business? Yeah, sure. So I work on the Atlas Innovate side of the business, which is more of the technological and transformation arm of holdings proper, which is um, the, the core holding company that invests generally in industrial manufacturing businesses. So think of pulp, paper, specialty building products, merchant power plants, automotive, um, but also in related distribution and service businesses. And, and generally they're they're buying uh, companies that are u- usually experiencing some form of financial or operational distress and where they bring in really experienced management partners to come in, uh, give those businesses some TLC and create a lot of value for you know, the, the shareholders, the employees and the communities which, you know, in which these businesses reside in. Um, right. on, the, on the innovate side, what I really do is sort of like two sides of the same coin. One, I help old line industrial businesses spin up new, let's just call them tech-enabled offerings and create, and whether that value is used for their customers or just internally and captively. Um, and then on the other the other side of the same coin, I help a lot of younger companies who are trying to reach those old line businesses commercialize their offerings by reaching out to those old line industries. So more of a connector than anything else. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And I, I think it's also important to touch on your background at Augury because yeah. it's relevant to some of what we talk about in technology and manufacturing. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give sort of like the quick, you know, quick John Cooper bio, not that it's so <laughs> fascinating, but maybe it's, uh, it's relevant. It's important. Uh, I, so I'm not a PhD in statistics, but I, I finished up with a terminal masters in what would now be called, you know, like operations research, um, data science. But I, but along the way I met a couple of guys who, who ran Alice Holdings and they were building out this, group that would go, you know, kind of go parachute into these companies, work with the management teams, give them some TLC and really help them improve their businesses. And that's really where, what got me into the industrial world. And it was, it was really just an incredible education. Um, and I worked there for several years. And then I started seeing that, you know, like many of these old line businesses could really benefit from just new technology or new technology back then was building out some sort of like macro in Excel to help streamline a reporting process. You know, I think everyone would, would agree now like, okay, that like, you know, there's, there's just like a practical limit to how useful that can be. 
what we often found was that like reliability in these assets was a huge thing. If you have unplanned downtime events, like those are things that are generally within your control. Um, and obviously there are surprises along the way, but if you can make sure your assets are performing reliably, that's really how you, how you create a baseline for success in the industrial manufacturing world. And so I met this, I met the CEO of the, of the business Augury, which was a seed stage startup out of Haifa in Israel. And um, Sar, Sar's listening, you know, he, he really gave me my start in technology and somehow allowed me to launch the US offices. Um, and we, we provided predictive maintenance classifiers to industrial end users. So it's a fancy way of saying, you know, we would diagnose mechanical faults and equipment using vibration and ultrasonic analysis. And we really, you know, th this was during the advent of the cloud computing and early machine learning era. And you know, the business is now like really wildly successful. Um, but I helped commercialize the offering there, selling mostly to at first HVAC services company, but then in like hardcore industrial end users who, you know, whose primary business was making sure that their machines were up and running and available for production. Um, yeah. And, and, and it was, um, yeah. It was really sort of, sort of like the basis for what I do. The, the, the two experiences are sort of like the basis for what yeah. I do, which is helping these companies. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. The thing that surprises me about what you just said on Augury is the fact that it's the end users that are doing those optimizations. My understanding was that you are, you're not selling to the OEMs, the manufacturers, the equipment, who are actually the ones that, in theory, have the best understanding of how these things should operate. Can you just help me understand like why the service providers and why the end users are the right buyers for this technology? Yeah, so so setting aside the end users for a sec, you know, when a, when a, when a manufacturer, when an OEM makes the equipment, um, there are certain industries where the OEM is highly aligned with their service organization. So in the case of the HVAC industry, York manufactures chillers and JCI, who owns York, services them. The same thing with train and carrier and... Um, um, but the rest of them are sort of highly fragmented, large regional HVAC service providers. And there are reasons why end users want to maintain that independence um, from the OEM and the service pro provider. Um, but a lot of time, and that's just the HVAC industry. In the automotive industry, obviously, you have, you know, Toyota, you have BMW, you have all these car companies, you have Ford. If you have a problem with your car, Yes, you can get it serviced at an independent auto body shop, but the, 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 the pendulum has been shifting, you know, has been swinging for the last 30 years towards getting your car serviced at the dealer itself. And the reason for that is, um, one, they want to protect their aftermarket revenue. So if, you know, you, you know, if you're, if you're an OEM, you know, you make a lot of money on critical spares, replacement parts and, and the service itself. And if someone else is performing that, you really don't know kind of what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and so you don't want to have that effectively annuitized revenue being broken. Um, but the problem for a lot of OEMs is they, you know, they sell through distribution channels. So they're heavily reliant on the channels that, that sometimes dis disintermediate them for their primary machine sale revenue. And so, this has been, you know, I'd say the world we've been living in for the past 50 years. Uh, we're actually, it's, we're better if we just stick to manufacturing and not deal with distribution. Um, but in the case of the end users, uh, you mentioned Augury, 
the end users themselves are manufacturers. In some cases, the OEMs who we cater to were, were actually manufacturing pumps and chillers them, themselves. Some of them actually don't have the wherewithal. You know, this is what most of the time I, I spend my days on today. Many of them don't have the wherewithal to actually like deploy connected service offerings that actually help them provide this service. Um, it's just not in their, their, their ballywick. And there are a lot of reasons why we could, we could explore it here or, or at another time, but uh, they're, it's not always, they're just not necessarily built for software enabled services. The manufacturers, the OEMs that are manufacturing right. these pumps. Yeah, the, o, the OEMs themselves. Yeah, got correct. it, got it. And, and and you say that they're not sort of in the business of doing that. Does that mean that they don't want to do it at all, or they want to do it, but really they need a technology partner like an Augury to be a effectively partner to them in better connecting them with their end customers? It, it depends, and it depends on the segment um, that you're that you're, that you're in. Um, I think many of them would like to do that, but are also really reluctant because, you know, if you create some sort of channel conflict, it's you're like, okay, maybe I'm developing a, a closer relationship with my customer, but now if I somehow disenfranchise my distribution network, it comes at the expense of more immediate term revenue. Maybe that's not the best, you know, <laughs> maybe that's not the best move for me to, to do. And so I think many of them have been straddling this line of, how do we actually get closer to the customer to get primary product knowledge to actually make our products better, um, which which you know clearly serves the interests of the end user as well as the, the distribution channel. But how do we make sure that we don't do that in a way that's going to really like you know piss off our distribution networks, for lack of a better expression? Yeah, really interesting. And and how have you found people identifying that right balance? You have to understand when your distribution network is capable of bearing, and actually what your customers want. In some cases, the customer experience is so highly attuned to distribution that it's part of a customer experience itself. So maybe the best strategy is actually creating an enabling bit of technology for your distribution network and not for the end user. Um, a lot of it has it's incentive alignment. I mean, that sounds so cliche, but it's all about the incentives in a given in a given industry. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I guess just very tactically, like how the people that have done it well, if there are examples, what have you seen there? Like what specifically have they done? Um, and, and maybe it's not what they've done. It's just the market structure in their specific, the thing that they are manufacturing allows it to work. But, but where do you see that success? And by the way, what I think of in this case is someone's like, someone like Siemens um, in their energy business. Because I think a lot of people think of Siemens as, yeah, they got the turbines, they got power plants, the, I'm not even sure, maybe they do nuclear power plants, but a lot of the infrastructure they're manufacturing. But what people don't understand is that most of their business is the recurring services revenue in the yeah. energy business, right? And somehow they've managed to make that work. And what I'm wondering about is what lessons can we take from those successes, those positive experiences and say, great, like as a technology vendor or as an OEM, how can I enable that to happen in other categories? If you can pick sort of case studies across each segment. You mentioned Siemens. I think Schneider Electric on balance has done something su substantially similar. They create a lot of the controls. They have the building, ma the BMS, the, the building automation systems, the build building management systems. And because of that, if you were to look at the top five commercial building BMS providers, I mean, they, they're, 
them, it's Siemens, it's JCI, Metasys, and you know Tritium are the top five, and they have a market controlling position. It's because they understand that you make the equipment, you provide the service, you deal with the controls and the automation. When you want to help someone press the easy button, people actually like dealing with one person for all of their needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd say that they're, they're a pretty good example there. Um, and I think you can find these across all, you know, like industry, industry subsectors. Um, yeah. So, so Schneider, just to take them as an example, I think it's a really interesting one. They've built a lot of this, you know, thermostats across a big commercial building. How are the pumps running? That type of monitoring equipment. Buying a, a Schneider machine is easier because they've built all this technology that you can use as an end user. The question I have is, is the software they're selling purely that incentive or is it also a revenue driver for the business? I think that in some cases, the way that these companies bundle their offerings, it's yeah. hard to know which is being used to, as a fulcrum to, you know, to the more lucrative business. So for example, like if you get a JCI chiller, maybe you get Metasys thrown in there, but maybe having the a discounted BMS system is part of the package of getting a chiller. I mean, there are all these different ways that the pricing is optimized for the end user. And yeah. then, you know, all of which is, okay, now that we've sold you the chiller and the BMS, why don't we sell you, bundle the service offering in there? I would wager that none of these companies are going to offer these things unless they're generating meaningful profits on their on their own right. I'm sure some, they're willing to tolerate, you know, maybe some some pain or longer sales cycle, but they're you know each independently generating money for their for their businesses on, on these yeah. services. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, I, I just think a lot back to auto because of those those amazing businesses, CCC and Solera, that built this effectively. I think it started out as software for auto body shops, and then it became the channel by which the OEMs would push repair information down to. The repair shops, either independent or through dealerships, and it became increasingly important because of the complexity of the end machines. So I guess I'm curious, in your view, is there a similar dynamic happening in OEM manufactured equipment that goes into factories where, you know, it's becoming so computer enabled, technology enabled, or just complex that it would make more sense for OEMs to be more involved in giving that information to the end buyer rather than being... Disintermediated by the service providers? Totally, totally. I think there was just an article today in the journal about how like it is still hard to fill industrial workers. Even though there's all this investment going into the industrial economy, you know, you have the, the CHIPS Act, the IIJA from 2021, the Inflation Reduction Act of 22, there is like a ton of new of new money being thrown at American uh, industrial capacity and it is so hard to get the workers the workers there and there, there are a litany of reasons for that it's training it's pay it's availability i mean we could go on and on but what it's producing is this environment where the the amount the skills the requisite skills to operate these businesses is just becoming too hard and throw in the fact that like these service partners for the factories have the same exact problems what it leads me to believe is that the OEMs need to account for this knowledge gap and provide yeah. a different type of experience with their equipment than they've typically been accustomed to providing, even if they run the risk of disenfranchising their 
their distribution a little bit, mainly because ultimately you bear the brunt for having a bad customer experience if you're the OEM. Yeah. So they have to account for it somehow, and it's probably through a deeper, more connected user experience. So interesting. So you would edit what I said to be, yeah, sure, the machines may be becoming more complex, but really it's just this like labor shortage that is forcing the manufacturers to be more involved in educating that end buyer of how to be successful using my machine. I think I think it's the I think a labor shortage is a um, is a reason for action. But there's also I mean like you know everyone's talking about the AI craze and the the technology now exists to actually do this in a less clumsy way. I mean the alternative before is if you're an OEM and your end user has an issue, they crank out this like absurd user manual that, um, you know, like 500 pages in a binder covered yeah, in oil. And it's also like, I mean, it's also written in a way that, um, like they're different, different people have different learning styles. And so some people like they aren't good readers. Some people are more visual learners. Some people, uh, listen better through just hearing what to do. And so the OEM sort of, you know, I think the first step was user manual. Then the next step was adding video content to help work. I mean, I don't know if you have ever like had a problem at your house. The first thing I do is like I YouTube it. I'm like, what is someone else doing who's having this problem? How can, how are they fixing it? Um, because I find those manuals to just be like super confusing. Uh, the experience now is going to be one that is more like AI enabled, kind of like chat, you know, chat GPT like. And it's going to create a deeper, a much deeper level of connectedness between the end users and their and the equipment that they're using. Yeah. And so, so I feel like it's not only just the worker shortage; it's the okay, we can actually do this in a way that's that's elegant now and actually more helpful. Yeah, yeah. And how much of that is like? I mean, I think it's a super interesting idea. I love I love that. Um, how, how much of it is going to be enabled by computer vision as well, where you can sort of say, and there have been a few companies that have done this already, but where you say, hey, let me take a picture of this part of the machine and say, this is what's wrong with it. And then you can use a, you know, multimodal model to say, okay, I see what you're looking at. Here's relevant information. Or do you think it's really just like, look, keep it basic, just allow people to ask text-based questions? Um, so it's a user experience question. I know that there were some companies that focus on augmented reality. And I'm sure there are people that will take exception to my comments, but like, I think that has mostly produced limited success in the industrial world. I think that most people want something that is super easy and my intuition, again, this is, this is a user experience question, I think is going to be more of how do you have an assistant that you can ask questions with and they can reframe, constantly reframe issues to you to the extent that they're not, it's not generating the result that is helpful. And so a lot of these LLMs do that. Anyone who's right. kind of like monkeyed around with chat GPT can say like, okay, act this way. You know, the, the prompts for it generate slightly different variations of the same end result. And right. when you have users who, um, of equipment who are, you know, they're asking themselves, they're, they ask questions. There's no like user group for certain types of equipment, but as they start asking questions more, and these groups of very specific users, user groups of very specific equipment become, let's just say they, they proliferate, you're going to be able to have the, the AI answer yeah. questions in a way that's just more iteratively helpful to an end user. Yeah, really interesting. And, and as you were saying that, 
my mind was going. I think one of the issues that you are you, you deal with as a software vendor in this LLM world is that it's hard to find sustainable long-term differentiation because like building something that can ingest a bunch of manuals and report that in the form of you know some chat-based interface is not all that technically complex thanks to the the road that we now get to walk on, you know, thanks to OpenAI and Google and all the people that have developed these, these transformer-based LLMs. Um, but you could imagine a world where that vendor, the ISV, is collecting all these questions and effectively synthetically building a forum, like a Quora for their products that becomes very defensible because losing that library that's built up over time, like how have people like me what would have been those conversation paths they've been through to solve similar problems? That becomes a pretty interesting data set. It becomes a very interesting data set. And then, but I think what you're sort of alluding to is that every company almost has like a media arm to it. And they're, they're basically creating these user groups to support and they have to facilitate engagement on those user groups. And I think that anytime a company is facilitating engagement, I, I, a, I would say like maybe that's a great thing, you know, the, the models, they're, they're necessary for the model inputs, but it's prob my intuition is that that has to be done in a very careful way because you could be introducing a, a tremendous amount of bias into these models. And like when anytime it's, you know, generate, you know, if the company is incenting contributions to the, to those user groups, the question is like, to what extent does that actually reflect reality? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, my, my vision for this was not so much. Hey, you're like hoping people contribute. It's just that you, as the OEM, if you're running this chatbot that's trained on your materials, are just going to end up capturing these conversations, which yeah. then you can use to inform how you respond to future conversations, and also probably even in your own product development work. There'll be some interesting oh, insights. Hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that's where my personal opinion is. I think that's where everything's going in the industrial world. Yeah, um, which is basically I, data finding a way to flow back to the manufacturers. Hundred percent. I think it's necessary for the product innovation. I think it's necessary for user satisfaction. Um, and yeah. you know, I, I, would, I think in many ways, like the sort of there's already a sort of um, the groundwork has been set. I think then that in the early 2010s, you mentioned Augury before. These first generation IoT companies that had been doing remote monitoring, they've sort of set the stage where customers are primed for having a connection already at their at yeah. their end user facility. So it's not as if there there isn't a you know a model for this that in some variation that exists already. Right. Yeah. The the augury thing was interesting. Is I I was always skeptical that that was enough data. It felt like one side of a two sided coin to just okay sure you have a bunch of performance data coming off the machine. But you don't have like the operational context. And I feel like what the LLMs and potentially this Q&A does is that it kind of gives you that because you, know, you see certain performance data coming off the augury sensors or like, you know, similar sensors measuring whatever it is that comes off these things. Maybe you should explain that. Um, <laughs> but then you can link that to say, okay, great. Now someone called in a day later and said, here is the problem that I'm, that I'm seeing. And you could sort of extract that signal, put them together. And then suddenly you have a reason for the data you're seeing, right? Yeah, t totally. So I mean, Augury, they deal with, uh, you know, the machine health itself. These are um, accelerometers, they're ultrasonic sensors, power monitoring, there, there are a variety of sensor suites that they that they employ to get the, the data that they need. They also completed an acquisition, I want to say a couple of years ago that gave that allowed them to get a more 
thorough understanding of the background system performance that obviously can either create or contribute to a machine health failure or the other way around. Um, I'm obviously not so intimately familiar with the day-to-day -day operations there any, anymore and sort of how they're, how they're approaching data modeling. Um, but I think you're right. The more fulsome picture you have as to what's going on, the better the OEM is going to be able to cater to their end users with the full entirety of the operational situation. But I also yeah. think that it's going to, to, at least in my mind, the engagement around this is going to be really, you know, weird. Like I, I think most people don't want to be online talking about things all the time. That's yeah. my, I think there's like fatigue about interacting with computers to begin with. So I think whoever, whoever gets the right balance here of user experience that contributes to the data, but that isn't, you know, isn't so obviously catering to the data modeling needs of the company who's providing them the value. Yeah. That's going to be the right recipe here. Yeah. It makes sense. I, I was also, as you were saying that was thinking about the right form factor for this, right? Cause like on one hand you could say that the sensor data becomes a leading indicator that you can then use as the manufacturer to reach out to the person before something breaks. Or you could say, actually, you're using the, the sensor data in retrospect to understand after somebody's reaching out when something has broken, what went wrong. And in your view, which of those two things is more interesting or more important from an end buyer or OEM perspective? I think people like knowing about problems before they happen. Um, I think psychologically, it's always it's more sort of destabilizing when you find out about something that's happened after the fact. And you're like, yeah. here's what you produced a bunch of bad parts that got stamped the wrong way or whatever. Yeah. I mean, when I go to, you know, I took my car in for a regular, regularly scheduled service and they told me I needed new tire treads. Like, I don't want to have to think about driving my kids with bad tires and they are more likely to secure that sale up front than if they're like, you know, then obviously after the fact, and then there's a whole bunch of other work that's happened because the car is you know, all jacked up. Um, like <laughs> it, it, it's just always better, you know, it's always better to do the right thing up front than after the fact. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think that's an industrial issue. I think that's just a human nature thing. Like you will find it always helpful when someone identifies problems that are important before they become bigger problems after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So let's, I like this idea a lot. Let's say someone were to go build this, um, how do you use, I want to go back to like what you talked about in the market structure of you have the, you have the OEMs, there's providers slash distributors, and then the end customers. What is the right way to distribute something like this? Like, do you sell it to the OEMs and then use the service providers in some way? Or like, how do you pull all these people together? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I could tell you what I think it is. And, you know, I'm actually working on something right now, uh, independently that is aiming to solve this problem. I think that the question, of course, is like, how do you get, um, how do you create the environment where everyone feels like they're winning? And in my mind, that is, you sort of found, you, you know, it's going to sound very sort of consultant-like, but like you almost have to think of like a pyramid of, of needs, um, but they're sort of like parallel pyramids. Like you, you have to, you have to cater to the end user because if the end user is not getting value, the whole, the whole jig is up. 
Yeah. Um, and so deploying something to them first where you're actually having them interact with the technology and seeing if they're getting value. I think that's sort of a, a step, a step one. And in the industrial world, I think that it's, it's funny that the sort of the narrative is that industrial users are like terrible buyers. I actually have not found that to be the case at all. I think that folks in this industry are really eager to always improve their business. Um, I don't, I don't have a great basis for comparison because I haven't really done work in many, many other sectors, but on balance, I would say that like, if you speak with someone and you can tell them that you can improve their operations, they're going to want to make sure that that is in fact the case, but I've never seen anyone sort of like categorically reject a new technology because they felt threatened, threatened by it. Um, they're just detail, you know, a, a lot of people work in manufacturing or engineers. So like, they're just more detail oriented. Um, right. so you have to, you have to appeal to that. Um, but I think that one, getting the customer value, right, getting feedback from the end user important. And then it's saying, okay, on the basis of that, what is the best way to distribute this? And in some cases that's either going to, is it a direct relationship or is the customer so accustomed to, uh, buying something through a channel and it's so central to the user experience that I'm better off going through distribution. Both routes may have a totally different like margin profile, but it depends what you're optimizing for in these like sort of data, data rich need environments. Maybe a channel strategy is better because you can actually like get everyone playing ball together and you start yeah. gathering the data you need better, a di more direct relationship may disenfranchise distribution, which may then mean slower data acquisition, even right. if it means greater sort of quote unquote product insights for the, for the OEM. Yeah. There are all these different like balancing acts that I think yeah. need to be throttled. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking one potentially interesting implementation of this could be like, you're selling it to manufacturers because they're the ones that ultimately have the data on how to repair these machines and they, they stick the metal nameplate on the thing uh, that you can then maybe scan with a QR code or, mm -hmm. or, or you know, enter, enter the model number uh, as the end customer and like get service on that. But you could imagine a world where the um, the person that distributed, distributes it also adds a little QR code sticker that you can also scan and sort of ingest into this LLM to add context to the fact that, look, like, yes, you're going to be asking about data from the manufacturer, but in the event that you get to some level where like the, the chat agent is just not able to solve your problem, that service provider can jump into that conversation and say, hey, like, it looks like I might need to come out and do something. So you can imagine some sort of beautiful integration of these things in an ideal world, I think. To to totally agree. I, I mean, look, that's a, that's a good idea, by the way. I like that idea a lot. And I also think it depends, again, it depends what people are trying to, to accomplish. Um, you know, you also want to make sure that the service provider is like accredited to some degree. Sure. Um, sure. There's, there's some environments where, you know, again, consumer example, I have a, uh, I think it's a Navian tankless water heater in my house. Um, I'm not just going to call some random dude to come fix that. I want someone who has a ton of experience, who's accredited in that specific yeah. type of equipment. Of now, there's obviously a practical limit, like how do I know what certification does the OEM give certification to their distribution to be trained in how to 
you know, fix these types of machines. But ultimately, like, you know, you as an OEM are also incentivized to maintain that, you know, GE certified distribution network where you're sort of making sure these people are all compliant with your best practices as a manufacturer. But I mean, you know, you can imagine you could take this idea a step further. I don't want to be, be too oriented to it, but but I do like it as well. It's interesting to think about like, okay, to, to be recommended by the LLM that is managing this chat interface, you need to be a member of like the, whatever, Schneider Electric service network. I, I think what you're talking about, you know, it's, I'm sort of, um, what we're really talking about is like, what is the future, what does what like the work interaction look like? And right. I, I was sort of talking about like the disconnectedness between worker and the equipment. I think the model in the future will, will more closely resemble the German sort of industrial workforce and the system of apprenticeships and guilds where knowledge becomes more specialized. Um, but like there's a deep level of understanding of between workers and the machines that they, that they rely on. Um, and so, yeah, I think obviously all this accreditation stuff will matter. The question is even then, like, how is it rolled out? What does the training look like? Uh, what, what is, what, what does the experience look like? Do you feel, do you feel like you're actually gaining or have some sort of unique purchase on the, uh, uh, purchase on the equipment and the knowledge that someone absent these things, you know, couldn't get that's right. Right. That's like a super. Uh, it's like a it's a workforce issue more than it is even a technological one. It's like how do you train people in a way to like be good at what they do? Yeah, yeah, and also like know when to reach out for help on these types of things. Um, totally, to- to- totally. But but I, I I think it'll resemble something something like that. And again, I mean that's a the question is of course is this something revolutionary or just like modestly evolutionary? Yeah, and my initial take is it's probably more modestly evolutionary than revolutionary, which is, there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that, look, like, we've, we've had this in other conversations, but what is interesting about this moment in time is that we've seen a technological platform shift that is offering new gradients for improvement. Uh, yeah and uh, executed correctly, while they may seem incremental, can have a really transformative impact on the industry. I mean, if you, I, I would imagine that for manufacturers, if people could be that much better enabled to interact with their products, or, or also maybe I could imagine a world where you as a buyer are more likely to buy from a manufacturer that just offers a better interaction experience with the manuals and like repairs. I think that's 100% possible, in which case like, yeah, it may seem incremental, but we're talking about, you know, how big is the, is the, uh, how many annual dollars are spent in U.S. manufacturing equipment? Like, it becomes a pretty big number of improvement, right? I agree. I mean, th- this is just going to sound like maybe I'm being too glass half empty here, but like, I just, when I think of like amazing innovations in the industrial world, um, you know, like, all right, so I'm, I'm 40 years old. Um, and when I think about like what, what's been truly amazing for, for my life, um, I'm not so sure that like over the last 20 years, yeah, we have iPhones. I'm not sure that's honestly been like a net positive for everyone. M- maybe it hasn't. Sir, I like getting directions on my, on my phone, but like all these things, of course, come at a cost, which I think, you know, everyone's sort of keenly aware about. But it's not clear that like we're just, you know, 
techn this technological progress has been an unqualified good. And it's also not clear that it's all like that dramatic and, re and revolutionary. Um, you know, obviously electric cars have been, have been a big one. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, th I think that a lot of these businesses, yeah, you know, what, what, I, what, 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 what is real? It, well, I, I was going to say, look, I, I feel very vindicated in what I just said and disagreeing <laughs> with you that, yeah. that you also don't think the iPhone was a big technology advancement and an enabler for society in, in a lot of ways. If you don't think that was good, then like, okay, great. Then, you know, the, the bar for you is so high that it's impossible to see anything as a... Well, the, <laughs> no, I, I think it's more about like, I think it's having... Um, having this, I, I, I forgot where exactly I heard this, but someone was saying like, if you lived in, you know, if you, if you were in the early 1900s and you lived in certain parts of the country and then all of a sudden you had indoor plumbing, electricity, was right. that more radically transforming to your life than say, you know, the difference now between having an electric car and, you know, getting the iPhone 14 versus, you know, upgrading it from the 11 that you've had over the past few years. I would wager that the person living in 1900, that was, you know, that, that was really a big change for them. I'm not saying, by the way, like, I'm not saying that, like, uh, I don't think these, the, these, you know, this progress is bad. I'm just saying that, like, the bar is high. Like, I mean, I, I think hopefully what's happening now is all of this compute we're throwing at problems, you know, particularly in, like, biotech, um, that that actually, like, moves the needle in a really big way. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually optimistic it will, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, the progress has been remarkable. And, and it may be that also there are reasons why modest things that are being modestly evolutionary are better in certain ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, like someone has to do the job. And I think this is kind of largely what the show is about of taking what was a really transformative technological innovation and just making it practical, right? Like talking to totally. people that run the businesses and like figuring out how to use it because it is going to be valuable. Like it, and it's not unbelievably groundbreaking. We're not reinventing AI here to go do like, you know, machine manual interaction, but um, it's something that, that needs to happen probably and will happen. And someone's going to make a lot of money and create a lot of value for the world in doing it. Um, well, I, I totally, I would just sort of uh, wrap up my thoughts on this with this. I think the person who figures out how to create, a, prof a sort of profound level of, who, or who can help instantiate a profound level of purpose and meaning in in this type of work will be the one who wins. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think it goes much more beyond that. Um, but yeah, that, that's my, that's my so, story. So I, I think it's, I, I love it. The last thing I want to I want to touch on is th there are very few charts that you see that are as up and to the right, like sort of an exponential curve of what you've seen in U.S. manufacturing investment uh, in the last few years, and the intersection of that investment, um, new factories being built onshore, combined with you know all that we're seeing in machine learning and AI, makes you think that we might actually a little bit like what India did with its uh, leapfrogging to mobile phones and never making it to laptops because they just didn't they weren't buying computers the laptops were when the laptops were the option may yeah. similar thing may happen here in the US right cuz like we're making all this investment right now and like advanced manufacturing is the current thing um, so i just I, I wonder if you could just give people a bit of context on how big that trend is yeah i mean look i think we're we're um, 
Well, well first, funny, I was cleaning out my, uh, I was <laughs> really belated spring cleaning, and I and I saw this like old copy of Zero to One that I had, and I just was like flipping through the pages. It's really like a great, great book, and uh, there's this there's this sort of point in the book where Peter Thiel talks about indeterminate optimism, and it's just really just like wishful thinking. And I think that when we were in this COVID, what COVID sort of brought to was an end of this indeterminate optimism and global free trade. Like, oh, it's just, it's just great. We're going to trade with each other and the market will just, just decide what is optimal for everyone. And then what we found was like, okay, we had this, we went through this, like, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't as traumatic as it needed to be, but like the, you know, I don't think anyone would dispute that COVID like was a deranging experience for our country. Um, we realized that, wait a second, maybe, maybe a ultra globalized free trade world just like wasn't that good for us. It didn't prepare yeah. us in the right way. Totally. And so now, you know, particularly in 2021, you had the infrastructure, the infrastructure bill was really like a long time coming in many ways, but that got through inflation reduction act, um, and chips act. What you really have is now this probably the largest, we're, we're in the early innings of this period of governmental largesse that probably hasn't existed since either the Manhattan Project, or the Interstate Highway Act. And so there's just a ton of money being thrown at industrial America. And, you know, obviously, I wouldn't say there's like a unified American industrial policy, but clearly what you're seeing is, you know, energy in the environment matters, national security in the form of CHIPS Act matters. And there are all these ways in which um, the American industrial juggernaut is kind of rearing its head again after what I would say, I, I don't want to say it's ever been in decline, but I would say it was certainly in a period of malaise for the last, you know, for the last few years. And so now I think it's really, you know, the, the giant has arisen and I think it's going to, I think it's going to be very impressive what happens over the next 25 years. Yeah, um, 100%. And just to give people some sense for it, there's some great charts. We'll include this in the transcript online, but on the U.S. Treasury website. And, and we're talking about numbers of, you know, uh, the, the sort of advanced manufacturing being con computer, electronic, electrical, going from, you know, 10, 12 billion to 100 billion a year, literally a 10x increase year over year, just because of these new acts. And that's just the computer piece of it. There's other components of all that are also rising, but that's kind of the scale of change that we're talking about. Uh, it's just really, really interesting to see, or will be really interesting to see how this affects uh, all of what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, on the non-tech side, I bet if you opened up like a food truck business outside, like the new semiconductor fabs, yeah. Uh, yeah. you probably do very well too. Um, yeah. A lot, but, a lot of butterfly but, effect things to consider here that may happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like I, I it, it is, there is so much money being being pumped into the U.S. industrial economy that, yeah, yeah I'm sure they're going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of money that's just wasted and a lot of companies yeah. that are trying to solve, solve, you know, fake problems that won't last, but they're going to be a real, a ton of interesting companies that are born out of this yeah. and who, who do a lot of tran transformative work. Totally. Um, totally. And, and, and I say that even if it's modestly evolutionary, that's still, that's still good, but I still think that yeah. there'll be a few there'll be a few big ones in there that also change the game too. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I would also say like, you know, I, I, I have an interview coming up with someone from TSMC and their manufacturing arm and, and the optimizations that they are doing, 
to make sure they don't even lose a minute of production capacity is just, it seems like a big level up from what the standard is in US manufacturing before, where it's not like, yeah, look, it broke down, we'll fix it in a few hours. Like that's unacceptable in some of these advanced uh, manufacturing settings. And I think like, as we look at this level of investment, it's really in like, you know, life side biotech um, and, 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 you know, electrical components. Yeah, I think a lot of the pressure is also coming from the end users. I, mean, I would give a give a COVID example, or in the aftermath of COVID, like we were running out. Maybe this was post COVID. I can't even remember. We're like running out of children's Tylenol. I just think that there are certain things that we will no longer tolerate as an industrialized society. And I think it's that we want to have the stuff we need to have, even if it comes, at, you know, even if it's a little bit more expensive. <clears throat> we're gonna, we are going to pay the price for increased availability in this country. Yeah, we are. We are. Well, um, John, this has been an unbelievably interesting conversation. Thank you for doing it. And uh, yeah, I hope we can do another one in the future. Pleasure. My pleasure, dude. Awesome.